Hello, and welcome to the Television Spotlight on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about a television show that we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I am joined by my sister Kay, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion on the Legion series from FX. FX, yes. From FX. That's that's one of the few things I understood clearly. Well, that's why it had the X in the Legion for FX. Yes! This is a series that uh, went eight episodes, ended in a manner that implied it wants a second season. Yes. Yes. And prior to, to us watching this... I had talked with, with Sam, we'd recorded uh, an episode, and I mentioned we were going to be doing this, and he had mentioned, that we were thinking about doing this, mm-hmm. and I think he'd mentioned that he had watched the first episode one, maybe multiple times. I, I think he watched it and then had to watch it again to see if he could figure out kind of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I, I can understand. Going in, it was going to be, we'll say, experimental. Well, one of my friends asked me after we watched... The first burst of episodes, if you will, because we divided it mm-hmm. between two days. How I was liking it. And I said, well, it's a show about a guy who everybody has told him he's insane. Mm-hmm. And I really felt they captured that feeling of what it is to have others try and convince you you're insane. There is a lot of aspects of this show where I thought the cinematography, I mean, they clearly got what I feel they were going after. Yeah, and in a, in an art house way. Art house is a good good phrase for that. Because there'd be times where like the center of the image is focused, and everything else is kind of blurred out and mm-hmm. very artsy sorts of things. Well, but and, intention clearly intentional. Yeah, well, and they made some fascinating choices in terms of set decoration, but taking that kind of a step further, like in the uh, Clockworks Psychiatric Hospital. They had a common room, and so the patients wouldn't feel like they're locked up all day. One wall of it has kind of a greenhouse, foresty effect Mm -hmm. to it. And they had a guy who seemed to kind of huddle inside the branches of one of the trees. And you would just sort of see his head poking out. Yeah, some guy hiding in the bushes. Yes. Go figure. How that could happen, I don't know. No, I asked you at one point, and I still feel it's valid if I could go to any person on this production and ask a question. It would be either the casting director or the actress who played Lenny. And it's, how was this character pitched? How how yeah. did someone approach you and say, I've got a part for you? That actress did a terrific job. Amazing. Uh, I would say, by and large, it was a fairly well-cast production overall. Yeah. I thought the guy they had play David Holler, the lead, who in theory is Legion, not that they ever use that word anywhere in the series or even explain how it might be applied to him. Very true. Although that's his name in the comics. Uh, he was, he did a fantastic job. Yeah. And then the one who played uh, Sid, mm-hmm. she was a, a, a strong lead as well. Mm-hmm. And both of them were charismatic enough that they were fun to watch. Yeah, well, and, and they had good interplay. The writing had some real strengths in uh, the first. No, it wasn't the first episode. Early on, mm-hmm. they switched places. 
but they had been establishing that she wouldn't let people touch her. It didn't come across as a phobia, just a people don't touch me. I don't like being touched. I don't let it happen, but not in a I won't let people get close to me sense. Yeah. And she did a great job with that. And there was just some fascinating stuff being done there. But then they had things early on that were mirrored later and a lot of things that were payoff coming out of that. Yeah, it was clear that they had a, a crystallized vision of what they wanted to do, mm -hmm. how to get from where they wanted to start to where they wanted to end. And yet there were things that I felt were, I'm not going to say harped on because that's not fair, but things that were brought up and recurred that I never felt got the payoff I wanted. Such as? The children's book. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The angriest child in the world. There I... seemed to be a little more there than just why does the Shadow King need this kind of third persona? Well, and I kept thinking, you know, if they're trying to tell us that David has repressed memories of being brought to the adoptive family or of his mother dying... And it being connected to the battle with the Shadow King or something like that. Because in the book, the mom's head got cut off. In the book, there was a city on fire in the background, much like what they said the Shadow King wanted to do if he took over David and his power. So it's funny because I felt they could have dealt with that in the classroom scene. Yes. Which I thought was a brilliant scene. The it's effects on that. Well, the whole thing takes the, – the show takes place in a variety of places, a psychiatric place, the Summerland kind of mm -hmm. camp for the people who rescue him, but also a lot of it on the astral plane. And at one point, the rational side of his mind is basically coaching him through how to deal with stuff. Slow down and just make sure everyone knows what a rational side of one, one's mind sounds like. British. Yes, of course. Well, but – and he tells the quote-unquote real David <laughs> – to, to imagine a classroom. And it was actually a really cool set. Yeah, I I would love a photograph of that set. And I'd love to know where they found that and filmed that. It looked to me more like a very small theater in the round. Or not quite theater in the round isn't the perfect expression. but It, it a had more... a theater aspect to it. It had a college yes. symposium kind of a room. Mm -hmm. Because the, the uh, chalkboards... Like three across, three tall, complete mm -hmm. with a, a step ladder, like you'd get up to an airplane on mm -hmm. almost sort of a deal. When I was in college, we had a theater that we doubled as a classroom when we had one class that had the entire freshman class or mm -hmm. sophomore class in it. And because it was a theater, you literally had students who chose to sit in the balcony yeah. and stuff like that. And that's what this had, that feeling of the second tier with the full balcony seats. But it wasn't just a few seats a little off to the side. It was more like 270 degrees of seating. Yeah, because there was the second layer. But the other thing that got me was the seating in the center on the bottom was on risers, didn't have rail. So it was... yeah. It was a very unique look, and mm -hmm. it was well used, and it really played well in that scene. And what they did on the chalkboards was yeah, beautiful. because the rational line was like, okay, you're adopted. Put that up on the whiteboard, or the chalkboard. Adopted, okay. And then at one point, David's like, it's like, well, I had a real mother, I had a real father. And then he draws those, and then the drawings start animating. Yeah. And the 
I mean, it, it, doing animation on a TV show, not hard. Getting it to where it matches so well and seems like it is literally part of what? that world. Because it's, it's, it's white chalk animated on a chalkboard. It's more than stick figures, but not by a lot, that make perfect sense to the story and theories being told. But it also in many ways mirrored the art from the children's book. But also, when we get the drawing of David's father fighting the Shadow King, g bald guy in a suit. Yeah. Okay, so one of the uh, uh, hints that his father could be Professor X. Well, and what was funny was when he started writing on the chalkboard, he wrote adopted, he wrote parasite, one word above the mm -hmm. other. And I'm looking at that going, all right, if we're about to write a series of words and suddenly the first letters all magically make a word. <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was glad they didn't go there. So was I. But when they started doing kind of an animated recounting of the history and, and playing with the ideas there, mm -hmm. it worked surprisingly well because the way the actor who was playing a dual role at that point yeah. was you know, reacting to what was going on in the back and the forth. It was He was reacting both to the art, to himself as his real self, and to his rational mind self saying, now stop thinking that way and think logically mm -hmm. or go the next step. So, yeah, it was, I love, that may be one of my favorite scenes, actually, from the series. It was one that played with the, the astral level in a fairly, what seems mundane way, but highly effective. And the series had a lot of moments like that. It also had a lot of moments where you've got, like, the zombie apocalypse in the yeah. insane asylum. Well, it had things where I wasn't sure, okay, what are they doing? Am I going to like it? Like when they brought in the interrogator from Division 3 mm -hmm. back at the end. And I'm like, okay, are we simply bookending? But then when he's down with a female Carrie in the interrogation room, and suddenly he's got kind of the video screen window into what's happening that Sid has turned on for him. And I'm like, okay, she's already said she thinks that he's not just an interrogator, but mm -hmm. someone who actually cares and wants a good outcome. He just has a different idea of good outcome. He's not ruthless. He's not out to destroy them. Right. He's doing what he thinks is right, and he's come to kind of like David. Right. You know, so she thinks, okay, if he actually understands what's going on, he can be dealt with. So she gives him this video view of what's going on. And at first I'm like, I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know if I'm going to like how this mm -hmm. is going to play out. But then when he ends up stepping into the battle, realizing, wait, we're all fighting the evil parasite. Yep. We do have a common enemy. Uh-huh. And he's now willing to be sort of their voice to Division 3. I was like, wow. Okay, I didn't actually see that bring him in, make it personal for him of we have a common enemy, therefore we have to work together. But I think that's one of the things that showed something that was integral to the mindset of the, the creative forces behind the show of kind of pulling back the curtain. Because mm. at that point, Sid pulled back the curtain a little for him, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. But also, think about how we started, I think it was that episode or maybe the one before it, when we first bring him, I guess it was the it second one. It was that one. one. Yeah. So the eighth episode, we hadn't seen this guy for a bit. He was there at the end of the last episode. So before getting back to where the seventh episode ends, they roll way back to the beginning to when we'd first seen him. He's gotten hurt. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, we know he's gotten the you know third degree burns or whatever, and we see his recovery, we see clips and stuff like that. They, they pull back the curtain and let us realize what's happened to him in the intervening time. Well, and I was teasing you. It's like we saw the time frame of the entire series from his perspective. Almost. But that's one of the things I really enjoyed about this because they tried to really show that these people have stuff going on when we don't see them mm-hmm. versus, we- oh, he's back. Who cares what he did in the meanwhile? One of the things I really liked about the David character is he's been hospitalized for schizophrenia. He's now being told, no, you don't have schizophrenia. You're a mutant with powers. And more than once, he comes back to, do you understand that the greatest danger mm. of a mental illness like schizophrenia is believing you're healthy, you're cured, the medicines have worked so well you no longer need to take them. These things that basically say you don't actually have schizophrenia. You're feeding into my wishes, which makes it hard to believe you're telling me the truth. The biggest danger of the delusion is believing the delusion. Yeah. Yeah. They, they played a lot with that, but the whole schizophrenia thing permeated the entire show because there were so many times where they would do just some, some odd cuts, we would mm. see some crazy things, they would jump around a little in time, it was hard to kind of really know what was going, and typically those sorts of, of storytelling shenanigans or whatever irritate the heck out of me. I know the feeling, but in this case, we had a character who was in a worse situation than lying to himself because he had a parasite in his mind. Yeah, but it takes a while to to really know that. Yes, exactly. But because of the way it all played out, we suddenly reached this point of revelation. Now, I had read, I'm not going to say every appearance of this character, but if there are any I haven't, that's simply because I just don't know about them. Not that I've seeked it out, I'm not particularly a fan of the character but admit it the series really takes place and is all about the fact he has a sister (laughs) that's right it's all about him having a parasite (laughs) you walked into that one yes i did but this is based on i believe uh the credits uh, chris claremont well chris claremont and bill sankovich or whatever but um it's specifically x-men 25 Okay. Which, if I recall correctly, was part of the Demon Bear storyline. And this is, first off, huge fan of, of Claremont's run mm. on the X-Men. He did some brilliant stuff, including the, the period of the New Mutant stuff this came out of. Uh, Bill Sankovich, and I may be mispronouncing the artist's name, very well-regarded artist, very talented artist, but has kind of, at least at that point, particularly the Demon Bear storyline, a very sketchy, scribbly mm. kind of a thing. The chalkboard art. No. The chalkboard art was nice, clean, and line work comparatively. Well, I was thinking the uh, the demon parasite attack at the end version. Even that. Oh, that's interesting. D- okay. At the time, mm-hmm. the New Mutants had a character named Cannonball. Mm-hmm. He was a six-foot-tall southern hick with flight-based powers and really short hair. Mm-hmm. It also had Ileana, magic. She is uh, about a foot shorter with hair about a foot longer. Hard to tell the difference? Could not tell the difference. You have such strict standards for your art. I know. But so I've I've read the character since he was created, the particular titles he was in and whatnot. So, I mean, I'm familiar with the character. Mm-hmm. And in the comic, he's definitely schizophrenic mm. or multiple personality disorder. And each one controls a different power. Mm. So at times they would take control or he would have to negotiate. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, Susie has flame powers and, mm-hmm. you know, this other one has flight or whatever. Well, the things I wish they had done better was once I got kind of a hold of the idea, okay, he's got this parasite in his mind, I kind of think the parasite was alien. When was it clear to you that he had the parasite and there was this other entity? Probably halfway through or more. Because for me, I thought they had set the scene as early as maybe the first or second episode. I was seeing the green alien thing, but I wasn't sure that was a in him or a parasite or, you know. This goes from having read the stuff, yeah. knowing who the Shadow King was. I knew from the minute we saw him, oh, that's what's going on. That's the battle. Yeah, see, I thought that there was some alien only he could see or something until about halfway through. It's, oh, wow, okay, it's not just that, you know, it's outside him and only he has connection. This show had the same thing that Mr. Robot has of Mm. the potentially unreliable narrator. Yeah. Because there are times where, you know, is Lenny Lenny or is it Benny or what's going on, you know? And that's something I wish they had clarified. Yeah, at the end, I'm still not sure. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. No, but the parasite says, basically, I allowed you your friend. We know Lenny was real in so much as Lenny died in the asylum incident in the pilot, I think it was, or early on, whenever the incident was. And other people saw Lenny's dead body and told him about it and confirmed Lenny died. So we know there was a real person named Lenny who died that he was But we also got confirmation when they talked to the ex-girlfriend about Benny. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's conceivable he had more than one friend. What we didn't get was clarity. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the things that I thought they kind of hinted at, started to go with, and then either dropped or didn't do a lot with, was the connection that formed between Sid and David Mm. when they switched places. And I wish they had delved into that far enough to tell us was a lot of that because of how powerful David was, because she'd never seemed to have that connection with anyone else. She tried places with Walter, for instance. Well, and there was comments he made, because when they, her she was the stand-in essentially for Rogue. Okay. The mutant you can't touch. Now, in Rogue's case, she would absorb abilities and whatnot. Okay. In Sid's case, it's like a physical swap. Yeah. Which is a, a crazy powerful power. And a little nonsensical if you think about it. It requires skin-to-skin contact to initiate. Mm-hmm. But you can be miles apart when it uh, when it snaps See, back. And that's why I couldn't understand was, was the snap back. And I guess she did explain at one point it was kind of time-based. Yeah. But we won't give point, that explanation. But at yeah. that point, it's effectively teleportation. Yeah. You're essentially kind of castling, if you will, in a, a chess terminology. Yeah. So it's, you know, fine. It was cool. It was interesting. It was a good excuse for why you couldn't touch her, and Mm -hmm. they played fair with that by and large. But it also created this very interesting, somewhat but not quite psychic link between her and David that they used throughout. But there were a couple of times where I thought, you know, he had commented about how he would reach for the long hair that's not there. Mm -hmm. Yet we never really saw him ever do that. Yeah. Well, and that's why I wondered, was some of that his just teasing her? And in that scene, I thought some of it was. But they were also pointing out to us to watch later for the she, like when she's standing at the back of the memory cube, Mm -hmm. she has this awareness of him that the others don't seem to have. Yeah. 
and it seems to track back to that bond they formed. But then again, we never see that awareness like between her and Walter. Going back to did David's being so powerful have something to do with it? I think there was also just an emotional connection there. And I would agree. And one that they built up well and fairly. Yes. When he's like, you know, I, I want to hug you or whatever. Yeah. And she's like, even with the gloves, the, the touch, it just doesn't work for me kind of thing. She mm-hmm. doesn't like it. Yeah. And he's like, well, it's a romance of the mind kind of thing. I, it, well, it really sold yeah. that they have a, a, a connection. And they did it so beautifully. And in uh, the Clockworks Hospital, I love where he got her to trust him, mm-hmm. had earned her trust. And they were staring out the windows. Yeah. And he got their reflections close enough to appear to touch. Mm-hmm. And she realized what he'd done. And it's, you mean, it can it can look like we're touching. We can think we're touching. But there's no risk of touching because she can't do that. It's, you're making the gesture. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And you're working with me and accommodating. Accepting her. Yeah. And she was, those two, I think, were clearly the most well-developed characters in the bunch. There were a number of other characters, though, that were just kind of placeholders or props. The memory traveler. The the memory artist, which yes. I thought was cool. I liked him. Well used at the beginning, and his importance to the plot kind of faded away. Yeah. Which is fine, but it would have been nice for him to, you know, if they had had a session with him and, and Oliver. Yes. You don't remember? Let me help. Yes. You know? So there are a few things they could have done there, but it wasn't essential, so I get why they didn't. But then the others that helped break David out, mm-hmm. there was the guy with telekinetic-ish, earth-moving-ish powers, don't mm-hmm. know. Somebody had flame-type powers at this point. The female carries unclear what she does. Yeah. And we later get the two carries, the guy and the girl, and an expositional backstory for them. Yeah. Which was fun. It was cool. They, in my mind, were kind of sort of the stands-in for... Uh, Jamie Madrox, the multiple man. Ah. You know, he was the mm-hmm. one that, um, he was actually in one of the X-Men movies. So I was thinking, but what I liked with the two Carries is she only ages when she's not sharing the body. Yeah. But a lot of the aspects of, oh, if I absorb the injured. Yeah. Straight from multiple man. Yeah. It was very cool. But the other thing is, I think, um, the, the carry, the, the guy, the older guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, was also kind of sort of a stand-in for Forge, who's the technical mm-hmm. wizard or whatever, if you will, of, of the X-Men at times. So it was clear that they drew inspiration from other mutants and stuff in, yeah. in the Marvel canon, but went their own way, created their own characters. Um, uh, Meredith uh, was essentially uh, the the lady. Uh, Melanie. Me- Melanie, sorry. I knew I That's got the okay. name right. Um, Gene Smart's character. Yeah was essentially a stand-in for Professor X. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here thinking I kept teasing you. There's a designing woman on the show. Well, she was there as the the telepath, the Mm -hmm. the leader, if you will. The mother hen. The mother hen. And it's funny because Professor X exists in this world by implication only. Yes. We get one shot in a dream sequence type thing of like the X wheel in a wheelchair. And that's the only thing to really clue us in. This kid's supposed to be the son of Professor X. Mm-hmm. Really, you take a two-second clip out, and it's like there's no solid connection. Yeah. Oh, they're mutants. Yeah. So it seemed at times like a surprisingly small insular world of, yeah. uh, that David is in. 
I never could figure out where they were. Well, I guess to me it was the, the social world. Well, no, but I mean, they were in a very small social world, but I could never even figure out physically where they were. And yet they were going between a major city with the hospital out to the horse farm. And I couldn't figure out if they were in a place with right-hand drive or left-hand drive cars. English-speaking country. Um, when the interrogator at the end is, is talking about his higher-ups, it's federal government. I don't even think he says United States, mm -hmm. but international coalition. I think when they went to the hospital to get whoever caused the incident, it was a left-hand drive car, and I think out at the uh, horse ranch, it was usually a right-hand drive car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were very fluid about the f the where in the world we were. Also, time. Yes. It felt like the 70s. Yes. Both from the TV monitors and stuff like that. The fashion. The fashion, certainly the fashion. But it wasn't one of those where, oh my god, it's the 70s. Well, the closest we got to someone saying it was the 70s was Oliver uh, talking about uh, the music from the 40s and 50s and that, you know, he'd been gone 20 years. Yeah, um, and Gene Smart's character made a similar reference. So there yeah. were a couple of things along with the space race and some stuff like that to kind of anchor it. But it's not like you would. we've seen some movies. I kind of want to think Days of Future Past was one of them. Mm. Where, man, you hit the 70s and it smacks you in the face. Yeah. You the, got the bell bottoms. You got the collars. You got the... Yeah, the soundtrack was interesting. In terms of there were times when they would do musical cues, and I'm like, and I don't know what you're going for here. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like with some of the X-Men movies where the music so clearly said, and this is the 70s or this yeah. is the 60s, because you know every but one of those songs. That was kind of the whole thing. There were a lot of things about the fashion, the interior decoration and stuff to, to make it feel like the 70s. But between, there were also things about that the cuts, the storytelling style, that it was just intentionally keeping you, I don't say off kilter. Yes. But playing a little fast and loose with some stuff. I don't know if you noticed uh, the coffee machine, which Jean Smart's character Melanie had said that she used her husband's voice on, and it told her the story of the woodsman and the crane. Yeah. And stuff. When Oliver finally makes I his... I did catch. It's like, have I ever told you the story of... Yeah. Yeah, and that was a nice little callback. Yeah. I also liked when Oliver's kind of first introduced to us, he's like narrating the start of that episode or trying to and does a full start or two. Yeah. And there was almost a, uh, I'm trying to think who's, it, it felt, um, shoot, there's a, a, a famous uh, film tour kind of a thing. It, it had kind of not quite the Alfred Hitchcock sort of a let me introduce you sort yeah, of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Or, um... Uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know. Orson Welles. Orson yeah. Welles is the one I was thinking. Thank you. It, it had kind of that. Well, and what I remember from that so clearly is being just so amused that he was saying that there were uh, two types of children's stories. Mm -hmm. There was the fluffy cottontail goes off and has a fun little adventure story. And then there's silly kid gets too close to the ocean and falls in. Yeah, there's the inspirational dream a dream, and then there's the nightmare kind of scenario sort yes, of thing. Yes, And here's the little fluffy cottontail of the dream thing, who's about to go f have a horrible ending. Yes. And it's, they may, there are two types of stories, but really, they're all the one. Yeah, yeah. I liked how they had a 
unique sensibility about the show in that respect. Mm-hmm. Because again, there are things about, geez, you're starting with a a, a direct address to the audience from a character we haven't met yet, we're probably going to, Mm -hmm. you know, where a lot of the storytelling elements they use throughout this often are just so repulsive to me at times. But here- They pulled them off. They pulled them off. There were a number of times that not only did they go up to the edge of what I would consider acceptable, they leaned pretty far over- Mm-hmm. But stopped usually just shy of, okay, forget it. The one time that I was frustrated and it's, okay, you you went too long with what you were doing was when um, bullets are fired in you a room. spend the episode in the fake uh Yeah. Well, hospital. what happens at first I really liked, which is Sid uh, throws herself at David in a hug. And says, go to the white room. David, white room now. Yes. Boom, they're there. And he takes everyone there. And the others are kind of looking around for that fraction of a second they're aware with the what is this place? Because they've never been to the astral plane before. I also love how they come out of it where they just kind of absorb into their body again. Yeah. There was an aspect of those scenes that felt very X-Men. Yeah. Because that whole astral plane and stuff using that as a private meeting room, if you will. Yeah. Because there's so many telepaths in the X-Men universe. Um, But also using that to coordinate, get back, okay, let's go. Well, and David had found a safe place Mm -hmm. for him and Sid to have their dates. A place where he could touch her and she didn't have to fear anything. Yeah. Because they were in the astral plane. But as soon as the parasite realizes... What David has done at Sid's behest, the parasite takes over Mm -hmm. the visualization, if you will, that they're seeing on the astral plane and spins it into a lot like what we saw at the very beginning of the pilot episode of Clockworks. Well, and it it doubled as throwing into question how much of what we've seen, if any, is is quote unquote really happening. Mm hmm. But it was one of those that we clued in, I don't want to say instantly or whatever, but long before the end of that episode where they finally, the characters clue in. Well, and it went on so long with the characters not trying to clue in, not mm-hmm. being given any reason to clue in. It. I wanted about 10 minutes before characters started questioning their surroundings. For someone to see something that said, okay, maybe all is not as it appears. There were aspects of the pacing throughout that, well, by and large, it was good. There were other times where, like when we get the interrogator back, mm. there's the other guy that turns out to be his spouse or whatever. Yeah. That we'd seen in the first two episodes, but I'd totally forgotten about until we see the guy back in the control room with their boss. Oh. Yeah. You know, so they didn't keep a couple of things in play that well. And certain, I don't say storylines, it's not true, but but certain characters didn't have a point. There were things like the wolf in the cage. What was up with that? Yeah. Why have the wolf in the cage? Why have Walter carving the the wolf or whatever? Yeah. Why have uh, the interrogator have a cane with a wolf and stuff? There's something going on here. What? Yeah. Maybe that was a, a reference to Wolfsbane from the New Mutants, who knows, but it was too oblique and it made no sense in here. And also, the Walter character, who was kind of the right-hand man to the interrogator, 
he it was never clear why he was doing what he was doing. Oh, that part I actually got. I never got what his powers were. I'll well, trade. at one point, I, I'm thinking um, he had kind of illusionary sort of powers, although he only used them the one when they're in the lighthouse with oh. what they thought was the um, yes, the doctor. the doctor. Okay, so it's like it's not him. It turns out to be Walter. How did that happen? Right. So kind somebody had illusion powers, shapeshifter illusion, something to that something. effect. Yet he never uses them anywhere else. Yeah, and see, that's why I hadn't. Put so, that together as his power. I yeah. don't get what the deal is with that character. But he makes a comment of, I lost my wife, I lost my kid, because of you, I want to know why. And that was right as he was shifting from the doctor to Walter. So was it the doctor saying that? Was it Walter saying? I, I don't know. See, I thought it was the doctor saying he lost his life. But he also comments about the vision in one eye, which, again, could have been either character. Yeah, I thought that was still the doctor. Um, Melanie explained Walter's motive. He's simply warped and likes to hurt other mutants. That's why he didn't fit in at Summerland. Yeah, but... As motives go, I don't care for it. It's not... I don't even get what his mutant power was. Yeah, see. There were... I like more provocative, more detailed, more thoughtful motives than he's just bad. There were a lot of of characters... Not a lot. There were enough characters that were just, we need somebody who can do this. Yes. You know, again, the guy with the the telekinetics or whatever. It's like, geez, out of the group of mutants we've got here, at least two of them are telepaths, at least two of them are telekinetic. And granted, David's one in each of those categories, but still. It, yeah. Well, actually, probably three are, are uh, telepaths because Shadow King. Mm. Well, would, four if we count uh, uh, Oliver. I was counting Oliver. Who else were you counting? Uh, um, Gene Smart's character. Era. Oh. She was, I thought she was telepath at the beginning. Okay, I Or was took, she just... She was basically thinking very loudly with her walls down, is how I took that. Because she was telling David, I know you can hear what everyone is thinking. Someone is thinking your name and calling it out. Focus on the one voice calling out your name and Fair turn enough. down the volume on all the others. Which was great visuals for how they did that with the it, giant knob and yeah. stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, I swear I've seen that 1970s sci-fi set. Yeah. So there was, stylistic-wise, there were some moments that were just beautiful. Yeah. And a few things like that, and the use of the memory cube and the, the, the memory artist and stuff. Mm-hmm. But there were a few things that, because of how they were telling the story, when they come out of the memory and they're in her office... Mm. That we'd never really seen before. Yes, which was very confusing to me, but I liked. It wasn't until the memory artist said, yeah, but we weren't here when we started. Yeah. And then we cut back to Sid and she's like, where did they go? Well, and I liked that the memory artist was the one person who could feel the wall and tell us this is reality. I can feel when I'm touching a memory. What I liked is he then paused for a beat and said, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah. You know, he was not infallible or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There were, and when they he was using it to, to kind of pull the memories off the tape deck and stuff like that. And yeah. There were a lot of, of fun aspects there. Yeah. So I think it was a very experimental, artsy kind of a show. I thought the interview with the ex-girlfriend was interesting in that respect, though. Yeah, I'm going to pretend to be a blind man as I'm scanning her memory. You just keep talking for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, but what was really interesting was when he says, okay, I'm done, and gets up to go, and Sid starts asking her questions, mm-hmm. 
And suddenly what she's remembering is giving different visuals yeah. to the memory artist. And he's going, wait a sec, that contradicts what I just got from her when she wasn't trying to think these things. Mm-hmm. We so, knew this and you're telling me that. Yeah. yeah. But her memory was supporting what she was saying, which was going in with, okay, so the parasite has some kind of memory rewriting skills yeah. that can affect other people. Which goes back to my, I never figured out what the powers and skill set of the parasite were. In the comics, he's another hefty level telepath. Uh, he and, and Xavier had gotten into it. Which actually explains why Melanie falls down in the final battle. Because the parasite is inside. Yeah, uh, an illusion, not an illusionary bullet, but you think you've been shot. Yes. Yeah. There were, there were parts of this I really enjoyed. There were parts of it where I don't think they would have had to do too much differently for us or for me to, me to have said at the beginning of, well, that was a very interesting episode. What else do you want to watch? Well, it's a lot like Mr. Robot in terms of it would have been an entirely different series if we'd seen it all from the sister's perspective, but even if we'd seen it from Sid's perspective. Yeah. And I mean- I actually would enjoy rewatching this season from Sid's perspective. But one of the fun things is when we start, we see all of it from uh, David's perspective, almost from birth. Yes, yes. And as they roll forward and stuff. So, you know, I thought they did some interesting things in that respect. And I love that lamp from his bedroom that survives mm-hmm. countless Well, that does the starscape yes. and stuff and how his dad was an astronomer. Yeah. It, it had a deep level of thought they'd given to the character. Yeah. I think they've probably done more and better with this character than by and large was done in the comics. Interesting. But at times, this character in the comics was pivotal. Well, the thing I wish had been clearer earlier was Sid's a mutant. She knows she's a mutant. Why was she in the hospital? Yes. A few things along those lines. Um, When Sid finally comes out of the hospital and ends up in the car with the Summerland people, who I have no real idea what to refer to as other than the Summerland people. There are a lot of people where it's hard for me and it's like, what was his name again? What was their name? What is their group? But like, they're not Division 3. They're the good guys. I mean, I don't think that our group ever got a name is my point. Well, we don't have Xavier, so we can't go with the X-Men. I don't remember the last name. Bird, I Bird. think it was. The Birdmen doesn't sound right. I don't think you want me to call them the Legion. No, because they're <laughs> not. That's just David and it doesn't even apply here necessarily. X, well, let's go with the Y-Men. Okay. Because <laughs> they're led by a... a... <laughs> <laughs> Why are they men? Okay. Oh, um, by, by a Y-Men. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I it's knew a what really you... bad pun. It is. I knew what you were going for. I was just avoiding it. No. Uh, so the Summerland group is in the car. They they hit that magic swap back teleportation time frame. And Sid is in the car going, surprise. Mm-hmm. But really from that moment, she's David's advocate for the series. She was that way, I think, from she may have been planted in there just to get to him. And that's what I wish we knew. But see, the Summerland people didn't seem to know when they got... David's body with her mind that they got the wrong person and she didn't at that point seem to know how to tell them. Which doesn't make any sense because they know her. 
unless she had already worked with them. See, she'd gone the, through the memory work. The that's what I thought. Unless she went through the memory work and everything after they mistakenly took her to Summerland while David was being interrogated. No, I don't think it was the time. See, it just so there was there were aspects that are unclear. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's because we have an unreliable narrator. Uh, to me, I take a That's little of it, that as unreliable. I think some of it is just that wasn't the story they felt they needed to tell. They didn't think we needed to know. But they also gave us some really good backstory on a lot of the other characters. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and I mean, as much as I'm in a joke, you know, they were confined to a one hour show. These were 45 minute episodes instead of 42. I think the pilot was like an hour five or something. Yeah. So. I don't watch much on FX, and uh, this this had a lot of meat to it. This was as close to like a Netflix-style show as you could be without being a Netflix show. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think it worked well on FX because of kind of that experimental, let's tweak the, the storytelling conventions a bit. And they, uh, they, they pushed them, but they didn't break them. As I recall, FX is the channel that justified also. Yeah. And I can see where the audience that enjoyed justified and it's non-100% standard storytelling, etc., would also be cool with giving this a chance. Yeah. Again, this was fun. It's not a character that, when I heard they were taking from the comics and doing a series on them, that I'm thinking, oh, well, that's a good one to do. It's like, this is a stretch. They made it work. I think without Sid, I wouldn't have enjoyed it anywhere near as much. I think they needed them as a pair for me. I think they managed to make this property work but change up the characters too much, change up the plot too much, change up the uh, the storytelling conventions too much, and this could have been a complete train wreck. Cast differently, it would have been a train wreck. Yes. Now, I mean, as much as I've been teasing you lately that so many shows that I thought were single hero shows became team shows, they gave us the illusion of a team show. But really, this was David and Sid... Backed up immediately by Melanie and male Carrie. Mm-hmm. And then supporting cast that was far less frequently Memory seen. artist and female Carrie, yeah. Yeah. And Oliver recurred at the end. At later half of the season, yeah. To me, it was... There was a, a team to be had, but it's like they were joining him, not him joining them. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a welcome to the X-Men. I hope you survived the experience Although it had aspects of that, let's do the the training, let's do this, let's do that. Mm-hmm. So it, it played with familiar aspects of the superhero genre mm-hmm. and didn't flat out subvert them, but it, it, it did them differently. Well, as much as there's usually the, we're going to teach you how to use your powers, I did like Melanie's approach of, we're going to help you look back at your life and see, okay, what did I misunderstand because people were telling me I was insane? But there's another way to look at that. We're going to help you rediscover your powers. Yeah. You were doing it bl- stumbling around in the dark before. We're going to help guide you. Yeah. But if you had no word in your language for blue and somebody introduced you to the concept of blue mm-hmm. and then say, okay, we're going to look back at your life and we're going to help you. Go through photos from your entire life, and we're going to show you pictures you took of the Grand Canyon. To me, that's essentially 
the story. It was an eight-page backup in the Green Lantern Corps of Tale, uh, Green Lantern of Tales of the Green Lantern Corps, and it was I forget the exact title, but it was the story of the F sharp bell. Green Lanterns, they've got the ring. Mm-hmm. They do all this stuff. Green light, important. The ring goes to an aquatic world. Yeah. Down in the dark depths, something. At least I'm pretty sure it was aquatic. It's been mm-hmm. the '80s since I first read it. Uh, a thing gets it, and when he gets trained up, it's basically you don't have the concept of of light. Therefore, green doesn't make sense. All of this, but instead of of light and color, you've got sound and a note. Yeah. So this becomes the F sharp bell instead of the Green Lantern. Yeah. You know, it's it's how do you find the right analogy mm-hmm. to to make something that is almost literally unthinkable mm-hmm. make sense? Well, the other thing that comes to mind though is if you go back and you read, I think it's Homer and things from the way back. Uh, you'll find that in that oral tradition that got written down at that point. Part of their rhythmic, they had certain phrases they used because they knew how it fit into their rhythmic pattern. That's hilarious to mention on something inspired by uh, Chris Chris Claremont uh, work because around the time uh, of him doing this when he was on the X-Men, Wolverine was the best he is at what he does. Uh, uh, Storm, you know, is claustrophobic. There were a couple of Mm -hmm. catchphrases that as you were first introduced to Cyclops, who has a child, was injured and can't control his optic blast. I forget the exact phrases. And it's something that if you read it once a month, oh, that's who this is. Okay, that's cool. Oh, I get it. Nightcrawler only looks like a demon. He's, you know. But if you then collect these in trade. (laughs) Yes. In every 20 pages. Yes, he's the best he is at what he does. I've gotten it the last eight times. Thank you very much. If you're in college and every third page, Athena is slim ankled. Yep. You're studying. Yes. But, but there's storytelling conventions. Yeah. Well, and it's something you know how it fits. You can simply drop it in. And in the case of an oral tradition, having things where it meant you didn't have to remember as much. It's a memory jog. It is. Oh, yeah, you mentioned this last month. I get it. This is the character again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when some of this was happening, nobody knew really who Wolverine was. They were discovering at the time. Well, scientists tried to figure out why Homer referred to the wine red water in the Mediterranean. Because mm-hmm. everybody knows water is not red, much less wine red. What's going on here? But I think the uh, optics... Yep. Our, our optic nerves work differently back then. Yeah, the evolution of the human eye. Yeah, But it's also, again, the evolution of story. Mm. When you're doing an, an oral tradition, you need certain things that roll off the tongue that mm-hmm. are easy to remember, easy to say. When you're doing monthly comics, you need certain things. Part of why superheroes have the, the suits they've got is the blue guy, the guy in the blue suit with the red cape, that's Superman. Yes. You know, the guy with the uh, the, the orange shirt and the green pants or whatever that's aquaman mm-hmm. you know it's it's uh, a shorthand well it's the same way that uh advertising jingles and corporate logos that's where they came from it's you've got the person in the black suit bodysuit with the the yellow x and they've got yellow hair and you can't tell the gender or the length of the hair it's either cannonball or it's iliana well but take that in a totally different direction when you're driving down the highway and way off in the distance, you see a square sign 
with two V-looking arrow points, and you know there's a gas station at that exit, Mm -hmm. you're pretty sure you know what brand it is, are you not? I'd have to think about that one. Apparently not. Chevron. Chevron. Yes, yes. I don't do Chevron that much, actually. And neither do I. I I don't know where the nearest Chevron station is to us. I was going to say, the better example of that is you see the golden arches. Yes. But there are, well, and the gas stations used to be the ones that really did it because they wanted people to be able to see their signs and just see a logo on the highway and recognize it. But you're right. The Golden Arches, uh, a friend from out of the country came to visit and I was driving with him around Texas and he wanted to find somewhere to stop. So I told him to look for a Texas stop sign. He's like, what's that? And it's it's a uh, Dairy Queen. Exactly. Because at times, it's like that's the center of, of society in some small towns. Yeah, but what great advertising campaign. And again, they synced it up with their logo. It is similar enough with the red and the white to a stop sign. So I can totally see what you're saying with the costumes of the comic book characters. And you're right. I know them by their costumes more than their names. Well, and what's interesting with Legion is they've got a fairly plain type logo but there's an X in the O of Legion. And again, if you know it's, oh, it's connected to the X-Men. Oh, it's about mutants. That's really about all you need to know. He was wearing a lot of uh, triangles. I'd have to go see if that was an aspect of what he tended to wear in the comics or not. The signature look for him is he was kind of, kind of tall, not huge, but he had hair that just went like straight up for about a foot. I mean, if they had cast a young Kramer from Seinfeld, it might have worked. Although, again, this guy did a terrific job. He did. I agree with your, the whole thing was well cast statement. It was well cast. It was uh, clearly they paid a lot of attention to everything from set design to uh, the the cinematography to the, Mm -hmm. the music cues to the editing. Well, one of the things that I thought they did almost hauntingly well was when they're trapped on the astral plane in the Clockworks Hospital. And the memory artist gets stuck in the loop of the memory from when his mother died. Mm. And he's told us the story of how he was, what, four or five years old at most. Yeah. And he was on the floor playing with Silly Putty. And he heard her fall, presumably heart attack while drying dishes. something. Yeah. You know. But then later they show us him. And at first you see him as the kid, but then they swap him to the adult. Yeah. There were a couple of times they did a couple of kind of swap outs of characters or whatnot pretty well. Yeah. It's it's going to be interesting to see if it gets a second season. I blow hot or cold as to whether or not I feel it should. There's plenty of story more to tell what happens with uh, uh, Oliver and stuff at the end. I was going to say I was more interested in a second season before the final five minutes. Do we find out what happens with, uh, you know, does, does David explore his backstory? Where's his father? That kind of a stuff. There are ways, there are directions they could go, but they run the risk of, of being a pale imitation of the first season mm. or thinking what they did worked better than maybe it did and pushing it too far. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I think they've got, from my mind, a fairly tight uh, uh, road they're going down. And there's not a lot of leeway. How did you feel about where they ended with Oliver? I was a little disappointed. I wasn't surprised. I was expecting that because he looks enough like the the Shadow King mm. okay. that I was expecting him to pretty much wind up that way. I was expecting him to really be the Shadow King. 
Interesting. As where the virus came from. In that he was the the frozen body or whatever in cryonics was, it's like, okay, his mind is toast. Mm -hmm. The body's still alive. We can save it sort of thing. Yeah. If they do try to tie this into the X-Men stuff, going to be a little interesting just because of the timeline and how old would Professor X have to be. Mm. So it's fun. It's interesting. It's nice for it to be its own pocket little universe. Mm -hmm. If they do another season, I want to see them bring in a few more, not necessarily known mutants, but mutants that they bother to give names to. Yeah. That have a little bit more clearly defined powers than they can do stuff. Yeah. I liked how they addressed fear, especially at the end. Um, It seems like so many of the things we've seen, the uh, Superman movies being a prime yeah. example, have been feeding into the culture of fear. And this being more of a, let's look at the common enemy. As opposed to just hating on one another because we don't understand one another. It's not that different is bad and therefore should be feared. Yeah. There was a groundedness of the fear. It's like, you guys are gods. Mm. This is dangerous. But there's also that the, the realization that that doesn't mean you are bad people. Yes. Yeah. So that's one that I would like. If, if they do another season, the interrogator has to be a regular. Yeah. And uh, that would be good. It's just a matter of what direction do they want to go and, and would they make it work or not. Yeah. So I'll have to follow up with Sam. He's usually pretty good about knowing what's likely to continue or not. He's already posted a bunch of stuff on the forums for uh, network shows. Mm -hmm. This being FX, that's a little bit of a different kettle of fish. Yeah. So, but I'll, I'll follow up with him. Again, I'm glad we watched it. I thought it was interesting. Um, it is one that you can't just kind of have playing in the background. You have yeah. to watch. You have yes. to engage with. Yeah. Because it's got a more challenging storytelling style. I would say be wide awake mm -hmm. when you're watching it. Be prepared to be driven slightly insane. Be prepared to feel more sane because you saw so much insanity. But also go into it alert. Yes. If it's just, man, I am beat. I'm so tired. I yeah. just want to veg out. Not the show for that. Like I said, be wide awake when you watch it and just go in realizing i want to say that there's some work to do in watching it but that you're gonna have to pay attention and you're gonna have to kind of sort through what's what yeah again interesting show um worth watching yeah probably <laughs> it to me it's not a certainly there are enough oh, other no. shows out there that it would not have taken okay. much for me to have said we should have watched something else when we watch this on a scale of that's eight hours i can't get back to, oh my gosh, go out and see it. I'm not putting it down at. It's I not want eight hours of my life I'll never get back. See, I mean, that's although what technically I'm any past eight hours would be. <laughs> but my but point is, it is worth watching. I don't regret having watched it. Yeah. It's something that I think for certain people will love it. I don't give it a wholehearted endorsement and say everybody should go watch it. It was very art house. And at times, I'm not in the mood for art house. So I'm glad I'd had some warning. It's not mainstream and traditional. I'm glad I had that warning and I'm glad I was in a mindset where it, it managed to resonate with me. Yes. Because I don't think it would have taken that much for me to have watched the first thing. It's like, this is just too much work. It's just, come on, tell me a damn story and be, you know, don't get all cutesy with it or something. I mean, it, it was not far f from that in its... If, if if I hadn't found the leads interesting and well cast or something, that might have been enough to, to rebel yeah. me. And I would definitely say be able to watch more than just one episode. Yes. 
this one benefits from marathoning. Yeah, I agree. So definitely interesting stuff. It's amazing how many comic book based TV shows are out there. It is. And this is just another one of them. Yeah. So if they do another season, we'll keep an eye out for that. We'll probably watch it. We'll probably record on it. Not necessarily a guarantee, though. Yeah. So anything else? Does that do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.